So often people want to talk about the Underground Railroad. They want to say who saved who, and there was a rescue, and, you know, we did everything, and we really reached out, and all of that is important. But the face of slavery, the mechanism of slavery, the brutality of slavery, the inhumanity of slavery, and the hypocrisy of slavery is not part of that conversation as it should be. This week on the Janice Adams Show, there's a new plaque in town. We're following in the footsteps of three men whose lives gave new meaning to the story of America. Join us on a path through history in upstate New York with our guest, Dr. David Anderson. First, the news. Today on the Janice Adams Show, we're traveling another leg of our Path Through History series recorded in cooperation with I Love New York. For this series, we began by following Underground Railroad trails to Peterborough, Auburn, and Rochester. This week, the stories of three men, enslaved at birth in the United States, who, as adults, changed the history of America. Frederick Douglass, the well-known abolitionist, publisher, Underground Railroad conductor, who proposed the Emancipation Proclamation, written and issued by President Abraham Lincoln. Reverend Thomas James, Douglass's mentor. More about him later. And Austin Stewart, for Black History Month and in commemoration of the 150th anniversary of his death, an historic marker has just been unveiled in Rochester. Leading the way today is our guest scholar and co-founder of Aquaba Tours, Dr. David Anderson. We're at the Radisson Hotel on the bank of the Genesee River. And this hotel uh, has the one sculpture I know of that depicts Austin Stewart and these three paintings by a Rochester native of life, episodes in the life of Austin Stewart. It is hallowed ground for me. As we approach, there are three paintings. How do these three paintings fit together? They are episodes in the life of Austin Stewart from his youth to being free. I see a young man putting a little fragment of a book that says the Psalms into his bib overalls. That's in the center. Here we have Austin Stewart seen slipping into his bib of his overalls a book. And uh, this is uh, something we've contrived because we don't know exactly. But given that these several boys were sent every day to this church to prepare it for the Christians, the white Christians, uh, we get him exploring and finding a scrap of a book jammed into a hole in the wall behind the pulpit. And he decided to keep this. He was sent to the sugar bush every early spring to tap the trees for the, for the sap, which eventually would become maple syrup or even sugar. He would take out his book, this little scrap, and though he had looked at it the night before by firelight, here he would pause while the sap is coming to a boil, reading his book. But one day, 
He's so absorbed in what he's reading because it's make, beginning to make sense that he can't help himself. He, he, and he fails to hear the footsteps of Mr. Fitzhugh, the nephew and son-in-law of Captain William Helm. And he slips up on Austin, snatches a book from his grasp, throws it in the fire, and then lashes him. If ever I catch you in a, in a book again, I will rip every inch of skin from your body. And then he went away to rest himself. And as Austin lay there with the blood running out of the open places in his back and shoulders, oh yes, I will learn to read if my life is but spared. And from that day forward, he sharpened his efforts, grasping information. He taught himself to read. It wasn't the, just the book. It was a matter of uh, seeing this lady go to the post office to get her letters and him seeing the written information above the door or to the livery stable somebody is going to get their horses shoed and he read the information there and by putting that together with what was in his book he became fairly literate fairly literate and so uh, fast forward he gets in his late teens and he determines he has to go he has to go and there comes a day when he and a young woman who is, is going to run too, they take to the woods. He's smart as they come. And he picks up that information and he heads north and eventually uh, reaches uh, the county just below the one we're in now. And uh, men are in pursuit of him. And uh, he breaks away. And having had conversations with Quakers and others who were generally thought of as anti-slavery, he was able to find his way to Farmington, about 20 miles east of us. And Farmington, he was directed to the home of uh, Otis Comstock, who was a member of the Hicksite Quaker Meeting House. And that is where Austin found his first real welcome. And for the first time in his life, he got to sleep on a bed. For the first time in his life, he got to sit at a table and was taught how to use utensils. Scenes from the life of Austin Stewart. On the right hand, I see a man helping a woman with merchandise in a store. Austin Stewart here in Rochesterville on this location as a merchant, giving people information about if they're going to travel on, which way to go, and so forth. On the left, I see an older man teaching a younger man, it seems, how to read, and also what he's reading, and it says abolition. He exercises his freedom here as a, a, an organizer of the Sabbath school, and always advocating to parents, get your children into the Sabbath school so they can learn to read and write. How did you come 
to the life of Austin Stewart? I mean, he is not someone who's well-known in our history. How did you find him? A young woman who lived in the neighborhood of the Anti-Poverty Agency, which I was brought here to be the youth director for, we struck up a conversation, and the name Austin Stewart emerged from some of her research. And on and on as the story evolved and she shared it with us, we set out to raise some money in order to make our discovery available to others. And it was out of that initiative that we got a bronze bust of Austin Stewart, which was created by Calvin Hubbard, and a hand-carved pedestal to place it on. And the artwork was established in a downtown hotel, which sits on the spot that Stewart moved to uh, about 18, uh, 18. One floor was devoted to uh, a store, groceries and other things, and a place where people coming through on their way north probably stopped very often to get some insights as to what lay ahead of them. Let's start back. Austin Stewart is born when? 1793, that's what it was, yeah, in Prince William County, Virginia. He was the son of slave parents, Robert and Susan Stewart. He had a sister and, uh, and maybe some other relatives, but they were all uh, chattel slaves of a man called Helm. There came a time in Captain Helm's life that his weakness, which was gambling, placing bets on horses, and got so tangled up in debts that I assume uh, his debtors uh, made it plain if he didn't pay up, they were going to do something to his, his leg or arm or whatever. And that led to Captain Helm relocating his two-legged property, his slaves, as well as his family, from uh, Prince William County, Virginia, to a town just east of Rochester. So how does this caravan essentially get from Virginia to New York, and how many people are actually involved? It was more than uh, 50 slave people, plus his family. Now, how did they get there? Well, of course, uh, Captain Helm kept a couple of his horses, even the slow ones, and he and his family either rode on the horses or and uh, some of them in the covered wagons, but the enslaved people walked. Mm. And uh, I guess it took them close to a month to make that trek from Prince William County to east of Rochester. And... Uh, they stayed there a while, and then he got to Bath, New York, which is south of Rochester, and uh, set up shop there. He traded off, he sold, he gave away several of his chattel, his slaves, which meant that families were getting separated. He kept uh, uh, Austin and his one sister, and it looked like that was going to be the only thing that Austin would look forward to. Seeing his sister, still having his sister with him? He and several uh, lads were assigned to clean the town church every Sunday morning. 
get it ready for the Christians who would come there to worship. But, of course, when the cleaning was over, they were put out. But Austin took some delight in that walking to the church, they would have to pass the house that his sister was uh, a slave in. That lasted for quite a while until that fateful Sunday when Austin and the boys are nearing that house, and he's looking forward to saying howdy to his sister, and suddenly they hear these screams. And just as they get just a few yards from the house, his sister runs out of the house, but right behind her is her owner. And he grabs her by the hair, yanks her head around, and begins to lambaste her. And Austin wants to go break that up, but the boys with him held him and tell him, no, Austin, you can't do that. Stop. You'll be make it worse for you and your sister. So he, all he could do was to watch his sister get beat up, and he could do nothing. And uh, when she was dragged back into the house, the boys gently moved Austin to the church. They made him sit down while they made things orderly. And about that time, the Christians came to worship. Say the Christians, I hear the irony in your voice. You're talking about the whites who are slaveholders, people who are hardly human rights oriented. Agreed. Professing Christianity and at the same point holding people enslaved when you say it that way. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And what that meant to Austin in particular at that moment is... Yeah. In fact, as the boys watched as the Christians entering, among them was a man who had beat up his sister. And he went and laid his head against the pew and began to worship. And then the door was closed and the boys, including Austin, were outside. And I don't recall that there's any evidence that he saw his sister much after that. Austin was troubled, was almost a broken young man, but the idea of freedom, that began to take hold of him. Being hired out just about every day, he got to see much more of the area, and sometimes he'd meet up with someone who was not particularly sold on slavery or being a slave owner. And among the people that he uh, encountered and had conversations with was uh, Mr. Comstock, who turned out to be not only a Quaker, but on a group that was involved in trying to uh, uh, end slavery in New York State. To end slavery in in New York State in 1827. You know, we have heard of the book now because it became a film, 12 Years a Slave, Austin Stewart's book, 22 Years a Slave and 40 Years a Freeman. When I hear you tell the story, you know, the issue is, all right, we we know that slavery was horrific, but people were trained to say, but what does it have to do with the North? Here you are explaining a life lived in the North and what enslavement meant in the North. 
And even though it ended earlier in the North than the South, it still was not unsullied by this very peculiar, horrific institution. When we come back, more with our guest, Dr. David Anderson. He is the co-founder of Aquaba Tours, focusing on African-American history. We'll talk more about that after the break. Trying to make it real compared to what... We're back with our guest, Dr. David Anderson, here on The Janice Adams Show, and he is the co-founder of Aquaba Tours. Tell us about Aquaba. First of all, what does the word mean? Aquaba, in the Twi language, the language of uh, Ghana, means welcome. And so Aquaba, the Heritage Associates, do uh, is, uh, is made up of volunteers and in the Rochester area, mostly uh, women uh, who work at getting the story of our quest for freedom and community out there in ways that we will be uh, honored by doing honorable things, and that's that's key. Aquaba, the Heritage Associates, Aquaba Tours is to give visitors a sense of what went on here, and but uh, understand that there would be no Frederick Douglass, it seems to me, without those people in his early life, and I consider his early life to include his association with Austin Stewart and uh, Thomas James. So, those three uh, men, you have called them. In, in your education of Janus, you have called them the founding fathers of Afro-Rochester. Why? Yes. They uh, came from different sections of the country. They had different owners. Clearly, there was a, a difference in many of the experiences that they had growing up. But uh, they came together here in Rochester. We had... Uh, Stewart, uh, who uh, uh, was born in, in uh, Virginia, we had Thomas James, um, uh, and we had uh, Frederick Douglass. Now, now James also was enslaved and escaped, and his route to escape was from Canajoharie, which is downstate in New York State, coming west and coming through the village which was then called rochesterville uh and uh, he did get all the way to uh ontario canada and stayed there several months but having uh lost members of his family due to this institution called slavery uh he came back and and he stopped in Rochesterville and was able to uh, to uh, uh, get by because he met up with Austin Stewart. And uh, as he got himself together, as he matured in his role uh, as an, a free man, uh, he helped uh, Stewart uh, get a Sabbath school together to to help especially people with children learn to read and write. 
and uh, wouldn't you know it, uh, after a while and by and by, uh, Thomas James was uh, contacted by the AME Zion authorities, and uh, with what he had learned by connecting up with Austin Stewart and 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 and, and others resulted in the creation of an AME Zion, African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, right here in Rochester. And if that isn't enough, next thing you know, they, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the body that operated the, the AME Zion uh, sent him to uh, Syracuse, New York. And, oh, by the way, I was a graduate student at Syracuse University, and while I was there, I attended People's AME Zion Church, which is a church that uh, Reverend Thomas James formed. But he didn't stop there. They sent him to Utica and all, all the way to the end of New York State. And then he was sent to New Bedford. Well, by that time, this young whippersnapper named Frederick Douglass, although he by that time uh, was ready to become a father, he and his wife settled in New Bedford, Massachusetts, and that was where he and Thomas James hooked up, and Thomas James licensed Douglas to preach, gave him access to a whole heap of AME Zion uh, uh, churches in, uh, in, in the United States, and uh, eventually uh, both would be here in Rochester, uh, and Stewart would be here while, and even though they had things to do here, there, and yonder, each of them, they were united in this business of freedom now, freedom now. They, they, they are the founding fathers of Afro Rochester, and a lot of folks, a lot of folks in this, in this realm thought it was important to see what these brothers were doing because everybody wanted some of this thing called freedom. And mm -hmm. they, they helped pave the way. My understanding is this, this triumvirate of, of men, Stewart, then James, then Douglas, with yeah. their connection to the AME Church, Mm -hmm. Amy Zion. Amy Zion Church. Mm -hmm. Did any of them attend the 1830 convention in Philadelphia? Well, now that you ask, I believe his name was Austin Stewart. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and ironically, uh, although he was getting to be respected in this part of the country, to make that long trip, he went in a stagecoach, but he had to sit outside the, <laughs> the coach with the uh, driver because there was this old race thing, you know. Didn't want him to get too close to the to the real passengers. But he he was there at the, uh, the AME Church. That was the locale for this meeting of black men on the issue of how uh, people should organize and move forward to try to end the slavery business. And uh, subsequently, the, the group decided that they should try to assist the people 
who are maybe escaping from slavery or but when they would get to uh Canada they were sort of disorganized and so he Stewart was elected the person who would go to Canada and try to pull things together and uh and and there at Wilberforce in uh western Ontario he was able to put together a an encampment and uh it was it was they were trying to grow a village a town uh a, a place of welcome you know uh, i i can almost see myself there because many of the people running that far into canada were from cincinnati which is where i was born and Cincinnati at that time was known for whipping, beating, killing, in other words, treating black people as things as opposed to people entitled to freedom and justice. And they and that's why so many at that time were were going to uh trying to get to Wilberforce. To put things in context, I'm, I'm going to read this excerpt from my book, Glory Days. And um, it's from the date April 2nd, 1830, just for the sake of the audience. Slavery in New York and then fanning out throughout the northern states and northern territories has been outlawed at this time. So anybody who would think that okay, once freedom came, things were good? Let's put it in perspective. In 1830, with the offer of Liberian emigration that was rejected by blacks, whites had begun a campaign to force their exit. In some cases, outright terrorism was used. People would be dragged from their homes in the middle of the night and given 30 lashes until they agreed to emigrate. In other states like Ohio, legal, quote, remedies were applied, such as enforcing outdated laws that called for blacks to register their residence and post a prohibitive bond of $500 to remain in the state. As thousands of Cincinnati blacks, just what you were referring to, Dr. Anderson, um, so many coming from, from that area, as thousands of Cincinnati blacks prepared to comply with the expulsion order, a terrorist white mob rioted through the black quarter of town to, quote, help blacks, end quote, move faster. In Baltimore, on April 2nd, 1830, in response to the trauma and isolation felt by blacks on a local level, Hezekiah Grice had an idea to hold the first annual National Convention of African Americans. And that is not my writing, African Americans. That, as an aside, was what the convention was called in the 1830s, black people were calling themselves African Americans. Look out. So at this first annual National Convention of African Americans, Hezekiah Grice sent letters to well-known blacks in each of the free states requesting their opinions on the need for and feasibility of his plan. 
five months later, he received a letter from Philadelphia's Bishop Richard Allen, co-founder of the AME Church and one of the greatest men of the day. Grice immediately set out from Baltimore to Philadelphia to meet with Allen. The bishop handed Grice a petition from New York in support of the convention. My dear child, he told Grice, who was just 29 at the time, we must take some action immediately or else these New Yorkers will get ahead of us. And with that, the National Convention movement was born. The first of them would be held in Philadelphia on September 20th, 1830. Over the course of American history, it is easy to overlook these steps to our political maturity, easy to discount them because complete freedom has not yet come. But even if our ideas and actions have yet to move mountains, they have certainly moved us as a people, uniting us to accomplish a shared agenda. Hello. All right. I love it. I love it. I love it. Thank you. So let's That's talk that. about that agenda that these three men represent. And let's begin with Austin Stewart, who is there at that first African-American convention in 1830, symbolic of this nation of African-Americans, however dispersed and alienated they may be, what's happening to him? Well, I think it's widening his horizons. He would never forget the loss of his family, his birth family. Uh, but uh, he did have the courage to go on. I think this given that he had something to do that would contribute to this business called freedom, this revived him. And so um, th these three men, uh, Stuart being the elder of, of the group, uh, were able to come together uh, to have a joint agenda, shall we say, uh, because of their time here in New York State, I believe, he um, uh, would e eventually marry, of course, uh, and that family would be with him in, uh, in Canada at Wilberforce. Uh, but when he came back, he had to send his family ahead of him. And when he uh, got things done and and joined them in Rochester. I think it was his oldest child was in her last days. It wasn't possible to save her. And she became one of the first interred at the marvelous cemetery we call Mount Hope. And as we make the crest of the hill, now we're, we're past on the left here. Uh, slow down, slow down, slow down, right here. We're passing a bronze monument that points the way to Frederick Douglass here at the Mount Hope Cemetery.
made it. I'm just saying it's quite a pilgrimage. It's taken all my life to get here. My grandfather being a Garveyite, he, he was an absolute devout follower and adherer and teacher to us of Frederick Douglass and what his legacy meant to us at that point. And I feel as though I'm saying to my grandfather without being dramatic, I made it. I'm here. It says Frederick Douglass, 1818 to 1895. There's a flat monument to him and behind is a raised gravestone that says to the memory of Frederick Douglass, 1817 to 1895. And those two dates are important because whether 1817 or 1818, the fact that we have had to wonder speaks to what enslavement was about. Nobody cared enough about this person to document the actual day he was born the way they documented other people. They just simply said it wasn't important. And so a man had to spend most of his life trying to figure out something as basic as that. When was I born? But for those of us who now think we know when he was born or don't know when he was born, he made sure we knew why he was here. Dr. Anderson, what does being here tell you? What does it mean for you? I'm, of course, drawn to Ms. Pitts Douglas, who, who did so much to preserve uh, his remaining years and the, the things that were accumulated in a lifetime. I'm certainly moved by Anna, who, being born a month after her parents were manumitted, she becomes an independent person as, as a young woman that Douglas becomes husband and wife with and subsequently will bear the five children that have the Douglas name. And Annie. Annie, who is the only one of the five children born here in Rochester. Annie, who set with John Brown for the month he stayed here in Rochester in 1858 and played games with him and, and marveled over the tools that he had, which was a compass and other drawing instruments which he would, was using to try to craft an escape route from the place he would eventually seize, Harper's Ferry. And it was she who wrote her father in 1860 Dear Father, I'm doing well in school. The children like me. I'm learning to speak German. And perhaps the next letter you get from me will be written in German. Father, Mr. Brown is dead. Those evil men took him out to a field and they hung him. That was December 1859. Nine days before her 11th birthday, March 1860, she's gone. There were various theories about what she died of. 
but I have come to the conclusion that it was, in fact, a broken heart. Will I ever see Daddy again? I'm so sorry that my friend, Mr. Brown, is gone. Why is Mama so ill all these times? What is this world about? And so the little girl gave up the ghost. Annie was the life and light of my house, quote unquote, says Frederick Douglass. That's all I got to say. How he got over, our souls look back and wonder how he got over. How I got over, yes, sir. When we come back, more with our guest, Dr. David Anderson. Trying to make it real compared to what... We're back with our guest, Dr. David Anderson, here on The Janice Adams Show. Dr. Anderson, as you have spoken of Austin Stewart, Thomas James, Frederick Douglass, of course the one who's best known is Frederick Douglass. And one of the things for which he's best known is his 5th of July speech. But now we know that as unique and original an idea as that was, he was inspired by... Austin Stewart. (laughs) Yes, uh, Stewart. Uh, He had different titles, of course, but he uh, fostered, uh, developed the idea, and did contribute to people looking at that day when slavery in New York State was was outlawed uh, as a promissory note that would help free the rest of the nation from mm-hmm. this thing called slavery. He uh, was already successful. He could have laid back on his success. You know, people were coming to his stores. He had to help get the Sabbath school together and, and all that. Uh, and, you know, he was literate. And, and he could have set back. He could have been... He could have been, uh, you know, chucked under the chin or patted on the head by the good Christians. Um, But uh, he kept on keeping on trying to get nation to see his people as just that people and therefore how his people, as a part of the our uh, community could become uh, the nation that was hinted at in the Declaration of Independence and other documents. How did you, as a scholar, come to history? Well, it came out of uh, Daddy and Mama. Mama was a youngster when when she and, and my daddy uh, married up. In fact, they eloped out of Alabama. And um, Mama couldn't hold the the babies, the fetuses, in her body. So out of the, I believe it was eight pregnancies, I'm the only one that saw the light of day. Mm. And uh, when I, the, the, the oldest memories I have is being at, 
at a place on Elizabeth Street in Cincinnati. And uh, on John Street, I was still in the crib, but I was old enough to say, Hey, Daddy, what am I going to get me a big boy bed? Well, son, it took a whole lot of money to get us this far, and, and your daddy is working on it. He was working two jobs, cleaning up at the post office annex, and I don't know what the other one was. Mama was um, going to suburban homes to do housework for people. But before I started school, I would look at my surroundings. Mama and daddy's bed were over there on that side of the wall. On the opposite side is where my crib was, and I would be fretting about wanting a big boy bed. And uh, sometimes I'd look at the images over my crib was this, I don't know, 16 by 20 inch framed print. The title of it was Beacon Lights. And look at that thing. And here was a, a lady in the flowing robes, and she had a, a palm branch in one hand, and she was waving it over two inset pictures. One of them turned out to be Paul Lawrence Dunbar, who uh, was a poet who lived a few miles north of Cincinnati in Dayton. And uh, the other one was this daddy. Who that old man there with them old white curls all around his head and chin there? Well, son, that's uh, Frederick Douglass. Why he got all that stuff on his head, daddy? Well, son, uh, I'll tell you about that someday, but he was one of our leaders. I'd look up every morning, see, you know, at that uh, was a kind of awakening. And then, after a while, I was led to school. And even though it was uh, uh, there was more white children than than black, uh, I had a position in the school. Uh, there came a day though that when my mama got this note from the school that I wasn't paying attention, and next thing I know, mama took me to school, and she's standing there in the classroom with Miss Brackenzeek. I'm sitting there, all the other children outside at recess having fun. But I had apparently said the wrong thing. But after she and Mama got through talking, I could go out again into the yard to play, to have recess. But Lord have mercy. I'll never forget that Frederick Douglass, uh, the way he was introduced to me because Daddy told me a little something about slavery. And so I kept the positives image of Douglas, and I have the print today, by the way, I kept that in mind as I went about various things, school, graduation from high school, six years of military service, and coming here to Rochester in 1956 to attend Rochester Institute of Technology. And Lord have mercy, mm -hmm. when I went to get my dormitory room, the housing director turned his back on me saying, I got no room for you. And he turned his back and walked away. And though I had been on Okinawa for 21 months, helping send bombers up to Korea to kill the Koreans, I had never set eyes on the enemy until that day. And I was tempted, almost went after him as he's walking away. But the cleaning lady, yeah, who was wearing my mama's apron, like mama had, flowers on and all that kind of stuff, and the first step I took, she said, got no place to stay, huh? And I whirled when I saw that apron and saw that the lady was maybe about mama's age. I listened, and uh, I was 
over the years, listened enough to understand that I'm home now, and I got to keep listening and trying to get others to listen to my story, which is their story. Therefore, our story must be perpetuated on as we move toward community. How we got over, our souls look back and wonder how we got over. How I got over, yes, sir. All right. We've spoken of Austin Stewart, Thomas James, Frederick Douglass, and in that conversation, we've crossed a century. How do you frame the legacy of what they've passed on to us a century later? Faith is, it doesn't come out of it. It's strengthened by believing. And the belief, believing is a consequence of being connected to individuals, maybe parents, who you trust, who, who, who demonstrate love, who, who contribute to the making and maintaining of community. And uh, you have to keep, at least I'm trying to keep in the forefront of my mind, that community is a compound word. Unity is the goal, but one has to have some action that contributes to that goal, that gets you on the road to that goal. So come to unity is what it's all about. And there are going to be some hard times for anybody who takes that view and refuses to be satisfied with all the mess that's going on now. We have to have faith, and the faith ought to be has to be based on what our forebears have contributed, their life stories, knowing that their life stories, getting the things that they left on the trail that is crucial to making it possible for us to join uh, for an unfinished journey. But getting on the road, making the effort, that's going to be something that you spend some time alone, but also remembering where you encountered individuals, be it family or other, that uh, had goals and worked to fulfill those goals as they move toward community. And that's all I am now as an old man with memories of People who opened doors for me, mom and daddy laid a good framework, a good, good, a pattern. But that enables me to recognize the cleaning lady at RIT Rochester Institute of Technology, who said, "You got no place to stay, huh?" And she sent me to her neighbor, and her neighbor was an elderly woman who was on leave that day from the hospital, come to see about her aging husband who had been a retired Pullman car waiter. And even though she was upset when I came up because she wasn't looking to rent no part of house to somebody, when she saw my face and the effort to try to look back in the direction I'd just come from, she said, oh, come on in, son. 
son. She and, and, and the woman who had sent me there were the, provided the means by which I was able to stay and finish what I had started here. And even though I would subsequently spend five years in Syracuse, I came back because the doors that were open, the welcoming, the, the saying of, or oh, come on in, son, is about community. So I had some more, I got some more to learn. I still got a lot to learn, and hopefully my learning will provide a little sliver of information that'll help somebody else on this road to being part of community. Dr. David Anderson, thank you for what you've learned and what you've graced us by sharing. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Underground Railroad descendant and former mayor of Oneida, New York, Max Smith. We must remember this history. It's too easy to forget all the important things that they said and did and the sacrifices they made that they hoped were helping to lead this country forward. And as I stand here now as a man of 62 years of age and I look around me and I listen to what's happening in American politics and I listen to where we have come and where we have not come, I know deeply in my soul that our cause must go forward. When Israel was in Egypt's land, let my people go. Oppressed so hard they could not stand, let my Janice Adams Show, Dr. David Anderson, co-founder of Aquaba Tours, and Max Smith. Our thanks to them and to you for joining us today. For more about today's show, including that image, Beacon Lights, that has been so important throughout Dr. Anderson's life, visit my website, JanusAdams.com. That's J-A-N-U-S Adams.com. From the studios of WJFF Radio Catskill, post-production Jason Dole, this show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, All Rights Reserved. 
Trying to make it real compared to what 